I love the story of a starving artist. For some reason, it just makes the music sound that much better if you know that somebody struggled in order to get it to you. There's a lot of talk these days about Nepo babies in the music industry, and in a lot of ways it's kind of unfair. Nobody's mad at the son or daughter of famous athletes if they themselves become a famous athlete. But there is something a little disappointing about finding out that a band you like has a lead singer that just happens to be Bono's son. We want our bands to form organically. We want our musicians to have paid their dues before they find success. But there are a lot of different ways to define success, and there are a lot of different paths to get there. Some people struggle, they live the starving artist lifestyle, and they never make it. I used to live in an art gallery, or at least it called itself an art gallery. It was actually an industrial building across from the city dump, and the owner had converted some storage space into a sort of really tiny studio apartment. I lived there for a couple years while I did all sorts of odd jobs, from driving a cab to working at Disneyland. I did it while also playing in a band and also going to community college and then eventually transferring to university. I never became a rock star or anything, but at least now I live in a place that has an oven and a laundry machine. All that is to say that I relate to people who had to struggle to make it. And on today's episode, we have the stories of three artists who went to extreme lengths to make their dreams come true. The first story is about a group that traveled across the country to try to meet the one man who they thought could make their dreams happen. The second story is about a singer with a very famous backstory who years later revealed that her origin story was not exactly what we all thought it was. And the third story is about a musician who wanted a shortcut to success. And in a weird kind of way, he found it. Today's episode, three artists who would do anything to make it. I'm Patrick Hicks, and this is Good Measure. What keeps us together across time, across space? The fragile moments that could as well be lost, but we hold on. One of the most powerful motivators for an artist to succeed is to escape their circumstances. And this was certainly the case for a hip-hop group from Cleveland, Ohio that formed in 1991 that was originally called the Band-Aid Boys. The members of the group were Anthony Henderson, Brian Anthony McCain, Charles Scruggs, and his cousin, Stephen House. Later, Stephen's older brother, Stanley, would also join the group. All of the members grew up in extreme poverty, dealing with welfare, violence, crime. When they got older, they would sell drugs, commit robberies to survive, but would all find themselves bonding over their love of music. Of all the members of the group, Brian had the toughest upbringing. He had actually been born in Columbus, Ohio, but when he was four years old, he and his two sisters were kidnapped by his mother's boyfriend. They were held captive by him for two years. He took them to various places throughout the state of Oklahoma. They were tortured and abused. And then finally, they were rescued because a babysitter happened to see their picture at the end of the made-for-TV movie Adam. This was a movie about the abduction and murder of Adam Walsh, whose dad, John Walsh, would then go on to start the TV show America's Most Wanted. At the end of the TV movie, they would show photographs of missing children, and that's how Brian was recognized and eventually rescued and brought back to Ohio. Years later, after he was successful, Brian would actually make an appearance on America's Most Wanted and do a song called AMW. When Brian was 13, he moved to Cleveland to live with his older sister, and eventually he met up with the other guys to form the Band-Aid Boys. That name didn't last long. In 1992, Anthony, Stephen, Charles, and Brian would adopt the name Bone Enterprise. There was a local record store owner in Cleveland named Kermit Henderson who had his own studio and his own independent label, 
and he took the boys of Bone Enterprise under his wing and helped them record their first album. The album was called Faces of Death and was very much in the horrorcore subgenre of rap. The imagery and lyrics in the songs were incredibly brutal and violent, but reflected the world that the members of the group lived in. The album was put out on Kermit's label called Stony Brook, but it didn't get heard much outside of Cleveland. So Bone Enterprise did the only thing they could think of, and that was just calling up every single record label they knew and asking to be signed. But the label they really wanted to sign with the most was Easy es Ruthless Records. The members of the group all worshipped N.W.A. Charles later said that when they heard N.W.A., it was the first time they heard anybody that rapped about how they were living. They felt like N.W.A. were the only musicians that were actually telling their stories. And by sheer persistence, Bone Enterprise actually managed to land an audition with Eazy-E. But it was over the phone. First of all, we got the number from one, from one of our dudes in Cleveland. Uh-huh. He was a promoter. Uh-huh. And he called and he gave us the number to Ruthless Records. And we started calling every single day. Right. Keisha Anderson. And she would answer the phone like, like, damn, y'all calling again? Right, right. So then like, we called one day and she was like, you know what? I'm tired of y'all calling every day. I'm going to make sure Eric calls y'all back today, I promise you. Right. And we was like, okay, cool. Right. And then the phone rang, and who was this? He was like, this is easy E. And threw the phone to me and was like, rap. And, and I just started busting on the phone. They rapped one of the songs from their album, Faces of Death, over the phone to Easy e and he told them that he would call them back. But it was basically a don't call me, I'll call you kind of thing. Bone Enterprise waited, but they never heard back from Easy e just auditioning for Eazy-E was the closest they had gotten to making it in the music business. None of the other labels would take their calls, so they saw Eazy-E as their only hope. And not knowing what else to do, the members of the group all scrounged their money together, and they all bought one-way Greyhound bus tickets to Los Angeles. The four members of the group, plus Steven's older brother Stanley, spent three days on a bus going across the country. But then when they got there, they still didn't know how to get in touch with Eazy-E, so they spent four months living on the streets of L.A., Trying to do everything they could to make their musical dreams come true. And you know, like we just started hustling. We started hustling to get one-way bus tickets, and we was like, "Yo, we just go. We didn't have nowhere. To, we didn't have nowhere to live. We was just like, we put a go out here and meet Easy E. It was our mission. It was the it, it was the whole plan to go get signed to Rufus Records. Then finally, they got a tip on where they could find Easy E, but it wasn't anywhere in Los Angeles. They found out that Easy E was actually going to have a show back in Cleveland. So the five friends got back on another bus and headed back to their hometown, determined to meet their idol in person this time. They had a friend back in Cleveland who was a promoter named Diego Black, and he managed to get them backstage at Easy es concert. And backstage in Easy es dressing room, they did an audition for him again. Again, they rapped a song from their album Faces of Death, the song Flow Motion. And this time, Easy es signed them to Ruthless Records. They went back to L.A. to finalize the deal, but the one thing Eazy-E wanted to do was to change their name. One of the things he liked about them was their very unique style. Their rapping had a sing-song quality to it. They rapped in harmony, so he wanted to call them Thugs in Harmony. But Bone Enterprise wanted to at least keep the Bone part of their name, since they had all already taken on Bone nicknames. Anthony was Crazy Bone, Stephen was Lazy Bone, his cousin Charles was Wishbone, and Brian was Busybone. Steven's older brother, Stanley, who would later join the group, was Flesh and Bone. So they changed their name to Bone Thugs in Harmony. Easy e set them up with West Coast producers like DJ Unique and even the NWA producer DJ Yella. On June 21st, 1994, they released their debut EP on Ruthless Records called Creepin' on a Come Up. 
The album was an unexpected hit. Even though it was an EP, it went multi-platinum, and a single from the EP, Thuggish Ruggish Bone, actually made its way to the Billboard charts. Thuggish Ruggish Bone featured a local Cleveland singer named Shatasha Williams on the hook, and it also had an intro by a pastor whose name was Calvin O. Butts. It looked like Bone Thugs and Harmony were on their way to being huge successes. Easy e was their mentor, showing them not just how to make hit records, but also how to navigate the music business. Then, as they were working on their next record, on March 26, 1995, Easy e died from complications due to AIDS. Bone Thugs were worried that their career was going to be over, afraid that their ticket out of poverty and out of a life of violence and crime was going to be over. But luckily, the remaining executives at Ruthless Records believed in them, and they got behind their album, which they called E-1999 Eternal. The first single in June of 1995 was the song First of the Month. E-1999 Eternal topped the charts and would end up going four times platinum. In 1996, it was nominated for the newly created category of Best Rap Album, but it eventually lost to Naughty by Nature. There was one track on the album that wasn't necessarily going to be a single, but it was proving to be really popular, called Crossroad. It had been written about a friend of the band who had passed away, but it had been written before Eazy-E died. In 1996, they made a new version of the song dedicated to Eazy-E that they called The Crossroads. This came out as a single on April 23, 1996. It debuted at number two on the Billboard Hot 100, which at the time was the highest debut for a rap song ever. Bone Thugs and Harmony became one of the most successful rap groups of the 90s and one of the most influential rap groups of all time. They inspired modern-day artists like Kendrick Lamar, who actually thought that they were from Compton because they were signed to Easy's label, and Drake, who has cited their rap-singing hybrid style as a huge influence on his own music. The members of Bone Thugs and Harmony were able to use their music to escape what must have seemed like an inevitable fate, because they believed in themselves enough to buy a one-way ticket to go chase after their dreams. This next story is an origin story that I've known for something like 25 years, or at least I thought I did. I remember when this singer first came out, for some reason she was always presented alongside her origin story, in a way that not a lot of other artists were. There's not really any point in trying to obfuscate her identity for this story, because she goes by her first name, she doesn't have a middle name, never used a different name, as far as I could tell she never even really had a childhood nickname. But even if she did, as soon as you hear where she's from and how she got her start, you'll recognize her. The singer I'm talking about is Jewel. And as Jewel herself has said, the whole world knows that she used to live in her van before she was discovered. So maybe you know that part. But let me tell you a little bit about how she got there and how the living in the van story is not exactly what we all thought it was. Jewel is from Alaska. I think that was a big part of her origin story that everybody knew too. She was actually born in Utah while her dad was attending Brigham Young University. But she grew up, as her father had, on her family's homestead in Alaska. 
Jules' grandfather, Jules Kilcher, was born in Switzerland as Julius Jacob Kilcher. Kilcher was a journalist, but he was also a logger and learned how to build log houses in the mountains of Scandinavia. In 1936, he had visited Alaska for the first time. He received 160 acres of land to build a homestead on, but Yule intended to build a utopia there. He wanted to found an idealistic community, and he went back to Switzerland to try to recruit people to come back there and live with him. He never found anybody except for a woman named Ruth Helen Weber, who became his wife, and together they had eight children. The oldest son he named Attila, who went by the nickname Atz. Yule and his family lived as if they were pioneers. They had no electricity, no running water, they went to the bathroom and outhouses. But Yule also made documentaries about himself. He put out two, one called The Last Frontier and one called A Pioneer Family in Alaska. Yule eventually grew his 160 acres to a 600-acre plot of land. Eventually, he would protect that land through a conservation easement to make sure it could never be broke up and the Kilcher family could continue to live there. Yule was a conservationist and a politician. He later served in the Alaska State Senate for a couple years. He could also be mean and harsh toward his children, something that he regretted later in his life. Before he passed away in 1998, he was able to make amends with his oldest son, Attila. Attila was Yule's fourth child, but his first son. Growing up on the homestead was hard work. They had to farm, fish, and herd cattle. And when they did have downtime, there wasn't a lot to do. They didn't have TV, the nearest town was too far to walk to, so Atz spent his time learning the guitar and the piano. In 1967, Atz got drafted into the army and went to serve in Vietnam. A few years after he got back, he enrolled at Brigham Young University, and that's where, in 1974, his daughter Jewel was born. I was raised on a ranch. I was raised on a ranch in Alaska. My dad's a cowboy. I was raised in a saddle barn, believe it or not. We had a coal stove for heat. We actually picked our own coal out of the veins in the bluffs. We only ate what we could kill or can, basically. We lived in such a remote place that it's actually Homer, where the town I grew up in, is uh, the farthest west you can drive in the entire United States. It's called the end of the road. And so my house, our ranch was beyond that, and so you had to walk two miles just to get to the cabin where I was raised. Atz became known around Alaska as a poet and a folk musician and also an expert yodeler. That was something that he passed on to his daughter. When Jewel got a little older, her and her father would travel around Alaska performing together. They would often sing at hotels like the Anchorage Hilton. Jewel said that the first song she ever learned to sing was a song called St. Louis Blues, a song written by the father of blues himself, W.C. Handy. When she was a teenager, Jewel worked at a dance studio in Alaska. One of the instructors there told her about a school in Michigan called the Interlochen Arts Academy. Jewel applied to the school and received a scholarship to go there to learn how to sing opera. Local businesses around Alaska who knew Jewel actually donated money to help pay for her tuition there. I was cleaning buildings and a dance teacher came from a school in the States, uh, an art school, and he found out I could sing. And so he helped me apply for a scholarship and I got a partial scholarship. They helped me raise the rest of the money. They helped me raise $10,000 to go to this fancy fancy school. So I showed up there, you know, with a large hunting knife and almost got kicked out my first day because apparently that's not smiled upon in finer establishments. While she was going to school at Interlochen, she received classical voice training and she also started playing the guitar and writing her own songs for the first time. She had written poetry for as long as she could remember, but now she was starting to learn how to play the guitar and she started putting her poems to music. The first song she ever wrote, she wrote while she was on a trip during a holiday from school. She was 16 and took the train from Michigan to San Diego, California. Then from San Diego, she went and hitchhiked around Mexico. 
She said it was on that trip that she observed that everybody looked like they were looking for somebody to save them. So she wrote a song called Who Will Save Your Soul. You have these two weeks spring break and, and I had nowhere to go with no money. And so I thought it was amazing to me how here in the States, all the states are so close together in a matter of hours, you can be in a whole new state. And so I thought I'd hobo by train across the country to San Diego and I'd hitchhike from Tijuana to Cabo and then take a ferry to the mainland side of Mexico. I got on the a Greyhound from Traverse City to Detroit. I spent the night in the Detroit city bus station and then got a, on a train and I made it to Chicago and that was my first stop. And my plan was to street sing, except I didn't know anybody's music. I had just learned uh I learned A minor, C, G, and D. I just started making up lyrics. My dad had taught me to improvise as a kid and just improvise about what was happening. And so I'd made up lyrics about people walking by. And it's my first time in a city, my first time seeing skyscrapers, my first time seeing pop culture, my first time... I come from a rural community that's very grounded, very down to earth, and there wasn't this worship of television and right. things and, and wanting to be other people. And, and so that's, you know, people living their lives for you on TV. They wish they were better than you, and you agree. And I just kept writing the song, and it got longer and longer and longer, and that ended up becoming Who'll Save Your Soul. People living their lives for you on TV. They say they're better than you, and you agree. He says, hold my calls from behind those cold big walls. There ain't nothing for free Another doctor's bill, a lawyer's bill Another cute, cheap thrill You know you love him if you put him in your will But who will save your soul When it comes to the fire? Six years later, that song would end up being her first single. But back then, she was a long way away from success. After graduation, she didn't want to stay in Michigan, and she didn't want to go back to Alaska. That trip to San Diego had made such an impression on her that she moved there after she graduated. She would play music wherever she could, either busking out on the street or playing shows at the coffee shops where she would often work as a barista. And this is the time that Jewel famously lived in her van. Perhaps this story was so often repeated because it's such a classic rags-to-riches story. She was a girl who made the ultimate sacrifice to make it. She lived in her car and played music whenever she could until she was finally discovered. And so I started going down on like the beach front in San Diego and I'd sing like street sing. And I'd tell people I'm singing at the Interchange coffee shop on Thursday night at six o'clock. And two people came like it was two surfers that thought I was hot, I think. And uh, the next night and I would go sing all throughout town on the street corner. I'd say, hey, Thursday night, they knew where to see me. And it just grew. It went from two people to four people to eight people to 40 to 80 to capacity to people standing outside watching me sing through the window. And I got discovered. Jewel didn't have enough money to record a demo, but bootleg recordings of her at coffee shops had started making the rounds in San Diego. She got a little bit of a local following, and her bootleg recordings were even played on the radio down there. There was a band in San Diego called Rust, and their lead singer, John Hogan, saw Jewel playing at a coffee shop. Rust was managed by this woman, Inga Weinstein, and in August of 1993, Inga saw Jewel perform at a place called the Interchange Cafe in San Diego and immediately signed on to be her manager. In addition to managing, Inga was also the vice president of productions at Paramount, so she had some serious connections in the music business. She drummed up enough buzz that there was a bidding war for Jewel, and she eventually signed with Atlantic Records. I went ahead and signed the record deal. I turned down the advance. I turned down a million-dollar bonus as a homeless kid. <laughs> but I took the biggest back end anybody had ever been awarded. If I sold records, I was going to make a shit ton. 
And it meant I had to put myself in an environment and in a position to win as a singer-songwriter and as a folk singer, no less, at the height of grunge. The odds of that working I knew were really slim, and I felt like the bidding war over me was just much more of like a dick contest between all the labels. I didn't think it necessarily had to do with my talent. I thought I was talented, but I thought the odds were still really, really against me. And I had to put myself in a position to be able to weather the fact that my first album may not be successful. Some of the songs from Jewel's debut album, Pieces of You, were actually recorded at the Interchange live in 1994. But for the rest of the album, Jewel went to record at Neil Young's studio called Broken Arrow Ranch in Redwood City, California. For the songs recorded at Neil Young's ranch, she even got to have Neil Young's backup band, The Stray Gators, play on her songs. The album contains songs that Jewel had written as a teenager, between 16 and 19. She was only 21 when the album was released February 28, 1995. But the album was considered a flop when it was first released. It failed to crack the Billboard Top 200. So Jewel just kept doing what she knew to do best. Perform. She just kept playing live, kept touring. At one point she toured as the opening act for Peter Murphy, the lead singer of the goth band Bauhaus. She said later that she actually had to pay to be on that tour. By mid-1996, she was starting to get some more buzz, so the label had her re-record some songs from her first album to be more radio-friendly. On June 4th, 1996, she released the single Who Will Save Your Soul, and on November 12th, she put out the single You Were Meant For Me. I never put wet towels on the floor anymore But it wasn't until 1997 that she finally got her big break, when Bob Dylan invited her to tour as his opening act. Now, for the first time, Pieces of You started to get noticed. The re-recorded singles started getting radio play, and in 1997, they re-released the record with the new songs on it. The album eventually broke into the Billboard charts and wound up going all the way to number four, two years after the album was released. In July 1997, a third single was released called Foolish Games that was also a hit. Foolish Games was also featured on the very strange Batman and Robin soundtrack that featured, among other artists, Smashing Pumpkins, R.E.M., The Goo Goo Dolls, and, believe it or not, Bone Thugs in Harmony. The videos for the singles from Pieces of You received heavy airplay on MTV. And this is where the myth of Jewel's origin story started to take shape. Every time you heard about Jewel, you also heard that she was a yodeler from Alaska who had lived in her van while playing in coffee shops. But years later, Jewel actually clarified that living in her van was not some kind of starving artist chasing her dream thing. She said that she was living out of her van out of necessity. One of her bosses had tried to sleep with her, and when she said no, he withheld her paycheck from her, she couldn't afford rent, and she ended up homeless. She said it wasn't some romantic thing where she was fighting for her musical dreams. She said she didn't even have a dream. She was just trying to survive. She said she tried to tell everybody at the time that the whole living in the van thing was not the romantic myth they were making it out to be. But of course, nobody would listen. Jewel continued to face a lot of sexism throughout her career. During radio interviews, they would make crude comments about her appearance. She remembered going into a radio interview in South Carolina when, on the air, the DJ introduced her as the large-breasted woman from Alaska. She fired back, you must be the small penis man from South Carolina I've heard so much about, and she was thrown out of the radio studio. 
There was an infamous interview on MTV where Kurt Loder sat down with her to discuss a poetry book that she had just released. He called her out for a word that he said she had misused. There's a line you have, there are nightmares on the sidewalks. There are jokes on TV. Mm -hmm. There are people selling thoughtlessness with such casualty. Mm -hmm. Casualty doesn't mean that. Mansplaining wasn't really a word that existed back then, but this interview was the epitome of it. It's tough to imagine anything like that ever happening to a male celebrity. Jules said that Kurt Loder never apologized, but after the interview where she said that, he did finally come out and say that he was sorry for his behavior. Jules often didn't get taken seriously as an artist. She was objectified for her looks, she was made fun of for writing poetry, although it should be noted that that book became the best-selling poetry book ever. It was chastised when she moved to a more pop sound, and she was never given the same respect as her male counterparts from the 90s. Jewel Albert predicted these things would happen to her when she signed her record contract. She said she almost didn't sign it because she was so scared. She said she had a lot of emotional baggage, and she knew what happened to people like her who signed big record deals. She was worried that she could fall into a lifestyle of substance abuse and possibly lead to an early rock star death. But she said that during that time that she was homeless and living in her car, that she learned to be happy. She said she made a promise to herself that her number two job was to learn how to be a musician, but her number one job was to be happy. If our first story was about a group who embodied the trope of doing anything to make it, and our second story was about an artist who actually subverted that trope, our third story is about an artist who embodied the philosophy of fake it till you make it. And even though they never really did make it, their story is a fascinating one. Jared Eames grew up in a small town in Missouri, and like a lot of small town kids, always dreamed of how he was going to get out. Jared's dad was into heavy metal, Metallica and Ozzy Osbourne, And when he grew up, Jared fell in love with heavy metal music, too. He started playing guitar at 10 years old and practiced obsessively. His older brother Scott was also into heavy metal, so of course, when they grew up, they started a band together. The Eames brothers were into much more extreme music than their dad. They loved black metal and death metal, bands like Behemoth, and they started their own black-slash-death metal band that they called Satith. The band tried to do everything the traditional way to make it. They practiced, they played shows, they sent their demos to record labels, but nothing ever really took off with the band. And also, Jared and Scott couldn't stop fighting. They fought over the musical direction of the band, and also Jared's attitude. Scott said that when Jared would step off the stage, he would never drop his stage persona. Eventually, Jared quit the band, and he moved with his girlfriend, who would later become his wife, Kelsey. He moved to the place where so many musicians moved to make their rock star dreams come true, Hesperia, California. It was 80 miles from Los Angeles, but it was the closest that they could afford. When they got there, Kelsey started working, but Jared lived off of his savings and focused exclusively on his music. He didn't talk to his brother or his parents again. They wouldn't find out what happened to him until six years later when his story was all over the internet. Jared created a new solo project, a band he called Threaten, T-H-R-E-A-T-I-N. He also started calling himself Jared Threaten. In this new solo project, he would play all the instruments himself, the guitar, the bass, the drums, and do the singing. I knew from a young age that I was going to be a solo artist. Much quicker for me to just go into the studio, record all the instruments myself, than it is to bring in my backing band to perform those things. The songs on the album are going to highlight the different instruments and the different things I could do on the different instruments. 
and the new music he started making was a far cry from the extreme metal he had played back in Missouri. An engineer named Greg Calby, who threatened paid to master his album, said that the sound was pretty retro-cheesy, like something from 1987. Jared said that he spent over $10,000 recording his album that he called Breaking the World. The song he wanted to be his big single from the album is a power ballad called Living is Dying. I will take In 2018, with Threaten's Breaking the World record done, Jared decided that it was time to tour. Now, normally a new band would try playing some local shows first, but Jared decided he wanted to skip that step. He wanted to go straight into booking a 10-show tour across Europe. Jared did manage to sell a couple hundred copies of his album, but certainly not enough to book a headlining tour across Europe. So how was he going to pull that off? Well, Jared had to get creative. Joe Prunera was a metal guitarist who lived in Las Vegas, and he had posted some videos of himself playing the guitar online. And one day he got a Facebook message from a woman named Lisa, who worked with a company called Aligned Artist Management. She told him that she had a great opportunity for him and that he should come to LA to audition. She told him he would be joining a band that was going to be doing a big tour of Europe. It didn't pay a lot. It would be a flat fee of $300 for the tour, but it would be all expenses paid. Joe figured it would be a good experience, so he went, passed the audition, and for three months would travel to Jared Threaten's house every other weekend to rehearse for the tour. As he got closer to time to fly to London, they spent every day rehearsing. It was Jared Threaten on vocals and guitar, Joe Pernera on guitar, bassist Gavin Carney, and drummer Dane Davis. All the hired musicians were told the same thing, that it would be all expenses paid and they would get $300 on top of that. But then two days before they were supposed to leave, they found out that the $300 was actually meant to cover their food and expenses for the whole trip. When they got to the first venue, a place in London called The Underworld, there were only seven people in the audience, and they were the opening band and their friends. The band and the people at the venue all thought it was very strange that nobody was there. But Jared and his wife Kelsey, who came along on the trip, didn't seem concerned. They blamed the venue for poorly promoting the show. But then the next night, the same thing happened again. The band played six shows, London, Newcastle, Glasgow, Scotland, Bristol, Manchester, and Birmingham. On November 9th, they got to Belfast in Northern Ireland, where they were going to play their seventh show at a venue called the Empire Music Hall, and that's when the articles started coming out about the tour, that the whole thing was a hoax. Jared Threaten's hired band members all quit the band. None of this should have happened, and I just want, you know, first and foremost to let everyone know that Joe, Gavin, and I, uh, we had no idea we were blindsided by everything that came up on Friday. It's it's shocking and we're trying to wrap our heads around, you know, what happened. I know that there's a lot of questions right now. I myself have questions. I, I honestly, such a surreal, like, strange thing that, that has happened with this tour. They canceled the show in Ireland and the remaining shows in France, Italy, and Germany. It turned out that the woman, Lisa, who had messaged Joe Preneur on Facebook and said she was part of Aligned Artist Management, was actually Jared. There was no Aligned Artist Management. So that's how he got the musicians. But how did he book the tour? How did he fool all these venues across Europe into booking his band that nobody had ever heard of? Jared had created an intricate web of fake companies, fake fans, and fake videos. He approached venues through a fake booking company that he called Stage Right Bookings. 
He made up a fake record label called Superlative Music Recordings that even had their own website. He put himself on a fake record label and listed his name along real bands like Material Issue, Braid, The Box Tops, and The Cars. He wrote an entire fake history for the label, saying that it was founded in 1964 after the appearance of the Beatles on The Ed Sullivan Show. He writes the whole history going through disco all the way to grunge. When people started digging into these fakeries, they saw that some of these went back to 2016, so he'd been planning this for years. He gave himself fake press coverage in fake newspapers like Top Rock Press. He made up a fake award to give to himself, the Top Rock Artist of the Year Award. And of course, he gave himself his own Wikipedia page. But he also made fake live videos where it seemed like his band was playing to huge amounts of fans. He bought fake followers on Facebook and other social media platforms. And it all worked. It was enough to trick these venues into booking a band that they thought was an established artist with an established fan base, but really was just a guy in LA who really wanted to live out his rock star dreams. Two of the band members had to find their own flights back to the States. They would later sue and win a lawsuit against Jared and his wife Kelsey in small claims court. They won because Jared and Kelsey didn't actually show up. When the hoax was uncovered, it caused a media sensation. There were articles everywhere. It was all over social media. And when Jared finally broke his silence, he made it seem like this was exactly what he had planned all along. He gave interviews stating that Andy Kaufman was his favorite comedian, that he had meant to create a villain persona like a Marilyn Manson, and that the whole thing was a publicity stunt and an art project. He would later tweet, I turned an empty room into an international headline. If you're reading this, you're part of the illusion. After the hype died down, it seemed like we might not hear from Jared again. And then the news came out that he was looking for a new guitar player. In a post with the headline, Who Wants to Go to London? He said he was looking for another guitarist and then listed a bunch of requirements. Among the requirements were, you cannot live with your mother. You can't be someone who thinks high-fiving is ever okay. You can't have ever said lol out loud. But the ad said you must have proficient guitar skills, be comfortable being on camera, and understand that some of the requirements may or may not be a joke. And then miraculously, Jared was able to put another band together. And more miraculously than that, he was able to book another European tour. Cashing in on the infamy of his hoax, he went and played another show at Underworld, the place he had first played in London to seven people. He booked the show for exactly one year after his initial performance. This time, about 50 people showed up. But most of them were journalists who left after a couple songs. The people that did stick around were mostly there just to make fun of him or see the spectacle. He played with mannequins and blow-up dolls on stage, with shirts that said fake band or BBC News, and at the end of the show, he trashed the stage. He did reveal in an interview before the show that this will not be a normal show. It will be a work of art. After that, Jared said that his second album, which was going to be called Infamous, was going to be coming out in 2020. He also promised a threatened documentary that was going to be made by the same people that produced the Maze Runner movies, and then a feature-length scripted biopic. He said he had other plans for other hoaxes. He said he created 10 other fake bands, all with their own fake names and backstories, and then he was going to try to fool booking agents and venues again. To date, none of those projects have actually come to fruition. Jared Threaten didn't exactly get the rock star fame that he was seeking, but for some of us, he created a story that we'll never forget. And one more thought for good measure. A story that I have always liked about an artist going to extreme lengths to get signed was about the rapper J. Cole. 
J. Cole had made it his goal to work with Jay-Z. He even had a shirt made that effectively said, one day I will produce for Jay-Z. J. Cole was living in New York, going to St. John's University, and he heard that Jay was going to be at his New York City recording studio working on the album American Gangster. So J. Cole stood outside the studio with a demo tape in his hand. He said he waited outside in the rain for two hours. And then finally Jay's car rolled up, Jay and his crew stepped out. J. Cole rushed over to him to try to get the demo to him, And Jay-Z just looked at him and said, I don't want that. Apparently, he did say, give it to one of the guys in my crew, but of course, Jay-Z never listened to it. Jay-Z's too smart to take an unsolicited CD. There's been too many plagiarism lawsuits over the years, so artists know not to take a tape like that from somebody off the street. So J. Cole just went about releasing the music himself and making his own path to success. And just a short time later, one of J. Cole's songs wound up being heard by an A&R guy who was friends with Jay-Z. Jay-Z heard J. Cole and immediately signed him to his new label, Rock Nation. I always wondered what that meeting was like, if J. Cole brought up trying to give him his CD, and if Jay-Z remembered him. But I like that story, and it kind of illustrates how the music business has changed. For a group like Bone thugs and harmony in the 90s, it really did just take one person listening to them and giving them a chance. But nowadays, you got to make your own success. You have to prove that you can get people to listen to your music before a label will take a chance on letting people hear your music. But if there's anything I've learned from doing these stories, it's that there's a lot of different ways to make it. Some words said in passing, the entire world crashing down again. You think that it's over, but then it goes on and on and on. This episode was written, produced, and edited by me, Patrick Hicks. Thank you, as always, to Brian Ashiba for doing the theme song to this show. And a very, very special thanks to my Patreon subscribers. Nia Bonds, Test Tube Waltz, and Rebecca, thank you so much for supporting me on Patreon. And if you're listening to this and you like what I do, you want to support me, please go to patreon.com slash Patrick Hicks Music Stories. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.